This is Death by DVD. We are your hosts. I am Hank, the world's greatest. And in the center square, it's I, Alexander Nash. Hello. Did I replace Paul then? I thought you'd be replacing Bruce Valanche personally. No one can replace Bruce Valanche. He's an American treasure. Star of Ice Pirates. You very well may be America's sweetheart. I have nowhere to go with that. There's not any, I, I have no like bag of Bruce Valanche jokes that I have prepared. Yeah, I'm alienating not only you, but the entire audience with what I decided to do the opener of this show with. Welcome to Death by DVD. It is no longer Groundhog's Day. And this week's episode is something a little bit different. Some new subject matter for all of you fine people out there in uh, Radio Land. I have three movies. I, Alexander Nash, does not know what they are. He has three movies. I obviously don't know what they are. We're going to talk about them and maybe try and sell them to you like a used car. It's like an old 1992 Honda. It's only got 100,000 miles on it. The transmission's slipping a little bit, but I'm going to try and sell it to you. I'm going to try to sell you nothing because I will probably be very dour and down note the entire episode because I can't talk loud. There's a sleeping baby next to me. And again, we just like to remind the audience it is not a kidnapped child. It is Alexander Nash's. We are not training another co-host like that whole fiasco in Bermuda. Never mind. It's an awful joke. (laughs) Awful, awful kidnapping jokes. Jesus fucking Christ. Is it 1997? I don't. I watch a lot of unsolved mysteries, and I think, I mean, obviously my material is is coming from what I see, so I may or may not have been watching Hollywood Squares. But I guess I can kick things off, and the best way to start any show is with an alien knockoff, and that's really what my first movie is, Sea Fever from 2019. The Irish have just as difficult names sometimes as the Italians. This director, uh, Niesa Hardiman, I'm sure I said their name completely incorrectly. Mostly a television director, and what you have here is a a pretty stylistic offering. I mean, it's nowhere near as sleek and shiny as Ridley Scott's Alien. That movie, even watching it without the sound, is just really, really cool and articulate to look at. This movie takes place in the ocean uh, on a big crawler, so it's cold, it's bleak, but there's something... Very connecting about that, where you're able to become part of the environment you're in and sort of feel alone. You have really cool characterization and depth of characters as to where something like Alien, you don't really know anybody. They all wake up, they come out of hypersleep, and there they are. You slowly get personality and you slowly get introduced to them, but then shit hits the fan. It's kind of backward in Sea Fever. You're introduced to your character, you're introduced to the type of person she is, and then you get the crew of the crawler, and there's very heavy similarities between characters like Brett and Dallas and uh, Parker and Alien that have translated into this movie. And it's not an alien knockoff in the sense that there's an alien, but you've got that recipe of a bunch of people in a situation, the pressure cooker situation, the uh, the life raft situation, as we sometimes call it on this show, and something bad happens and nobody trusts one person. And it's always interchangeable. There's a thousand different ways you can do it. Most alien knockoffs, especially like the Italian ones in the the 80s and the 90s, are really horror-based, graphic, body horror, guts, exploding monsters, um, a lot of action, gunshots, gunfire. Well, well, hold on a second, Hank. I have news for you. I have seen Sea Fever. Ooh. So that that puts a, 
a whole wrench in this episode because I can actually discuss this one with you. Um, it does have a body horror element to it, very much so. Um, with I the, feel it's uh, prominent, but it's you know it's all right. It's not like David Cronenberg body horror. It's more like no, no, Brandon no. But Cronenberg. it does have a body horror element because there is that the introduction of an invasive species basically to the boat and you did compare it to alien and i'd say that's a pretty apt comparison but it also has a very heavy leaning towards uh, john carpenter's the thing as well kind of mixed in there it's kind of a mix between the two i think you've got the recipe of alien and then the body horror infection aspect from the thing and they both complement each other very well the, the two mold really great a little bit of a spoiler here you get exploding eyes you do get some graphic content but it's not like you know, they call it a xenomorph in, in Aliens, and you have definitely almost a xenophobic feeling in Aliens and Alien that even Ripley not letting Kane back on board, uh, you know, there's this fear constantly of the unknown as to where in Sea Fever, the characters, especially our lead, who is a scientist that's out on this crawler doing research with they're all fishermen, so she's you know out there with them, but is definitely not one of them. But you've got her personality, and you've got her mixing and melding into what happens, and it's not a fear of the unknown. She isn't const. She she's here for research. She's here to learn. She's here to explore the unknown. So it has almost an opposition as to something like Alien. But in total, uh, the movie is about the scientist that goes out on a trawler on the west of Ireland, and they end up going into an area that is heavily off-limits and become marooned out there where some sort of what is presumed to be initially barnacle attaches itself to the side of the boat, and one when they try to remove this, they find that it is a rather massive, giant sea creature, sort of a, more of a Lovecraftian monster. And again, I don't mean to say that to give you an idea that it's from outer space. You don't know. It's just... It's not Cthulhu or anything. It's a giant glowing tentacle monster with, like, lamprey... I don't know if I'm saying that word right, uh, creature's name right, rather. Lamprey, eel, sort of uh, orifice that can attack, and it attaches itself to the boat, mistaking it possibly for a whale or food. It, very, very similar, and that's why I... I ingest kind of call it an alien knockoff and there's nothing wrong with that i mean there's a lot of movies that come from that formula and you know it's it's like sampling music when you have a great idea and you're not quentin tarantino you're able to write something and actually make homages to it and have an influence and have it very very relevant in your movie and it not be a complete knockoff but i'm just an asshole so i call it an alien knockoff <laughs> well like I caught this movie on Hulu maybe in October. I don't remember exactly when I saw it, but I watched it and the big drawback for me on this, and I did enjoy it for the most part because I think it, it is shot fairly well. Um, and the creature itself is pretty interesting the design wise because it does have the, like the glowing iridescent sort of tentacle thing going on. And that's like, hasn't been seen too much, maybe in something like Harbinger down, you got a little bit of that, but this is very much um, kind of a different look. My biggest problem is the exploitive elements were not hit hard enough. And it ends up being so much more, um, the paranoia aspects of John Carpenter's the thing more so than it does a monster movie at a lot of times. And you have like parasitic creatures within the boat and stuff like that. So it's, it becomes a very human story, which is all well and good. Um, not that that element of it is terribly done or anything. It's just not particularly what I'm looking for in a monster movie. Cause I would like a little bit more monster action in this film. And I think the ending 
is quite well done for the most part, but just getting to that build up is just it's it drags too much for me personally. And for the hype that this movie got that, you know, we've hit it's a, it's a terrific monster film. And I wouldn't even really describe it as like a uh, like a monster picture as much as it is like a kind of tepid drama with monster elements added to it, which some more people would be looking for that but i'm more of a sleaze merchant myself and i prefer kind of more sleazy elements i kind of want that uh 1988 blob remake aspect of a uh, horror film and this doesn't have that aspect for me personally but overall it was it was okay i wasn't bored by it but again i wasn't like you know shocked i wasn't like rocked out of my seat by the entire film i think one of my biggest complaints is as the characters begin to how would you say it get dispatched sure there's some imaginative deaths in this movie but none of them are really gripping and you have taken a lot of time at first the characters are all you know they're rugged seamen (laughs) seamen and you learn a lot about uh, like i guess boat culture that's a weird way to say it you learn a lot about the mythology and lore i guess of being at sea like redheads and women are bad luck on boats and our lead character happens to be a redheaded woman so things don't work out initially for her the characters are very crusty and they don't get along with her and you get this developed relationship and everything's nice and of course it's an alien knockoff you got to have a dinner table scene where everything goes wrong we've got one of those and it's like The only heartwarming piece in the movie, everything starts working out and it feels nice. Shit hits the fan, and when shit hits the fan in something like Alien, that's really when the pacing changes and the the frightful aspect of the movie comes into play. I just didn't really care when bad things started happening to the crew. It was like, well, whatever, we don't really know who's infected. And then bringing in the aspect to the thing, we have a whole test. And it just, it was like the remake, well, not so much remake, but remake slash prequel to the thing, where they do the whole, well, if if we've become part of the monster, our fillings won't be in our mouths. You just shine a flashlight in someone's eye, and if some weird worms move... Their eyes are going to explode, I guess, or maybe they'll go insane and try and kill you. It's not specifically clear, and it's not problematic. It just kind of dragged for me, and then you get a really fun action sequence at the end of the movie, and it turns into... So many people in reviews, I guess, found the ending to be dismal and lackluster, but I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. It was the best part of the movie for me. It was like towards the end, like the last five to ten minutes. It's like, okay, shit's actually starting to happen, and it's really starting to pump up, and then it's over with. And that's like where I was just like, all right, when you get the most interesting part, you kind of ended it. Well, I think there's some exploitation there also because you are given a ray of sunshine and some hope, and you really think everything's going to be okay. And then, spoiler alert, it is not. It was not okay. Things are not okay. And hey, that's life, baby. That's reality. And it's not like, oh, what a fucking doomer. It's just how things are. And in the situation at hand, you, again, Alien and The Thing both have this in common. Only one person seems to actually realize and care about the threat. Like, if the xenomorph was to get back to Earth, the havoc that it could cause, or if the virus in Antarctica was to get back to anywhere else, civilization, the havoc that it would cause. And you've got that uh, little bit of, like, an anticipatory driving fear that this could get back to the world, but the rest of the crew is, is really angry and just wants to get home, and you start hating them because they're just dicks. So... That never works. I never want to see somebody get killed. It's great when their head explodes. 
I don't want it to happen though. I want I want to be shocked and feel bad when their head explodes. I don't want to cheer. I guess. Yeah, I think overall my biggest drawback for the film was it was very much a retread of a lot of things that have come before it, and it didn't really nail the aspects that would make it an interesting retread of really like kind of pumping up the action or with modern special effects doing something interesting. It seemed a little bit more focused on the paranoia aspect of it, and I just I don't find that quite as interesting unless you can really take the paranoia and twist it in a way I haven't seen before or really push it in a like, bold new direction, and they didn't do that. They just kind of, it seemed like somebody had seen the thing. as like, I can do that on a much smaller scale with less uh, elaborate special effects. And to me, that's like, well, you're you're bearing the lead with that. That's what's interesting about the paranoia in the thing, not just the paranoia. It's not that your acting was bad, but your script just it didn't like it it didn't enrich the characters enough for me to really care about their paranoia. If you could have really amped up that and as amped up the uh, the monster aspects of it too, I think you really could have something there. And again, it's not a terrible movie at all. Um, out of five stars, I would probably give it three three and a half. So I mean, it's it's a decent film. It's just it didn't really nail it for me though. It just didn't hit the the high highs that I really need. Yeah, I would give it the exact same rating, and I, I'm really partial to agree with you. It was one of those things that when I finished it, it was, well, that, that was well done, job well done, all right, and I just moved on to something else. I guess I have to add here a notation to my list. None of these are specific movies that you know I really fell in love with or, you know, God damn, I gotta, people got to see this. This is more, I guess, our uh, Roger Ebert Death by DVD episode. I don't want to be Roper, so I guess I'll be Siskel. Or are you Siskel and I'm Ebert? Uh, you're. I don't want to be Ebert. But I'm tall and skinny. Yeah, fuck, and I'm the one with a cigarette in my hand, so jaw cancer. Enjoy your mouth cancer, asshole. Hey, well, Vincent Gallo gave that to him. So I mean, because I don't think he was a smoker. I I think Vincent Gallo cursed him. What an awful person. Well, Not- I die of brain cancer, so there you go. <laughs> Vincent Gallo's not an awful person for cursing Roger Ebert, by the way. He's an awful person because he's just a fucking awful person. <laughs> that's just how it is. It's just really he's the fucking... just a cocksucker. He's just not a nice man. He's not good. Nothing about him is. He's a talented artist, and I uh, I enjoy his singing. His beautiful, ladylike singing. I was going to make a joke about Unix, but I don't know if the audience would get that and that's like some weird german opera shit so anyhow yeah we're just talking about movies on this episode it's off the cuff yeah this is we're, we're shooting from the hip if you don't like it you can go check out the groundhog's day episode and uh enjoy that so is it my turn oh yeah so let's talk about the movie from the hip <laughs> i'm just joking that that, that segue would have just been perfect <laughs> that really would have um, been but no, we're not talking about From the Hip, which is a quality Judd Nelson, uh, John Hurt picture, though. I do enjoy uh, Bob Clark's From the Hip. All right, well, the movie I'll be talking about is an incredibly recent film. It is from a couple of months ago, actually. Um, it's a movie that came out and, again, had a lot of hype. And people just kept saying, you'll never believe this ending. It's so grim. It's so morose. It's so over the top. And... I, okay, I'll watch this. I'll track it down. I'll watch it. And I watched a little movie called Hunter Hunter, 
starring Devin Sawa and Nick Stahl are the two major leads or the two major actors in that one's fucking year is this This, that's uh, you even just said it's like two months old and the the leads are Devin Sawa and Nick Stahl like it's fucking 2002 I will tell you this much Devin Sawa impressed me in this film he's buff as shit he he's no joke that guy got tired of being made fun of or something because he's really packed on some weight I mean in a good way I'm like and I'm not hmm I don't know how people would feel about this comparison, but the entire time I was watching the film, I was like mentally comparing Devin Sawa to a, run, a young Richard Harris. He reminded me of a young Richard Harris, actually, just this grizzled um, mountain man. And he did a really particularly good job in acting, which really is shedding some light on, um, was it 2019's The uh, Fanatic with John Travolta that also had Devin Sawa in it? Who I loved that movie. Uh, and you know what? You, you might talk him up now, but you know what he's starring in that's about to come out with uh, Kim Director from Blair Witch Book of Shadows 2, but Devin is the lead in Danzig's new all-vampire oh. western. Danzig God, himself Devin. is going to be in this. It's you a... dug yourself out with Hunter Hunter, then you fucking slummed it. Danzig's next movie, and I really can't imagine that like you're getting paid well for that. I don't, <laughs> I don't see Danzig just like forking over big piles of money. He's not fucking Gene Simmons, who I also could never see actually giving anybody money. Just ask Ace Freely. No, I just see him giving people mostly the clap. So, but I'm bummed, Devin. <laughs> but in thematic, <laughs> his performance is kind of uh ridiculous john travolta's performance is ridiculous and you're not like with that movie it's just like what the fuck were these people thinking this is fucking a a dumb ridiculous movie and people were just kind of off put by this whole thing and i was just like i don't know how serious any of this is i think this was purposely tongue-in-cheek but with devin sawa's performance in hunter and hunter it kind of solidifies the idea that yeah that whole movie was pretty tongue-in-cheek because his performance in hunter hunter is a earnest performance it's actually really good and for a little canadian um child star to be able to play like a woodsy uh hunter type character and really pull it off it's like okay th- this dude's really like he's acting it's, Casper, and it's some baby. of the best acting i've seen him do in a long time it's casper baby he is not casper in this film i was making a kid's reference good old larry clark <laughs> The uh the general idea here is again Devin Sawa lives in um the Canadian wilderness with his wife and his daughter, who's like about 13 and they live off the grid. They live off the beaten path out in the middle of nowhere. And they, um, he's a fur trapper and they don't like There's a small town close to them, maybe 20, 30 miles away, but they have no contact with the rest of the world. And he, um, as he's fur trapping and hunting, um, he sells the pelts and all of his traps are getting, um, taken all of the, you know, the things he's trapping are getting taken by a, uh, a wolf that it has recently come into the area, and it becomes about him trying to kill this wolf that is uh, basically starving his family out of uh, house and home. And his wife just wants to get out of the uh, the entire picture, and she just wants to actually live in a town, get a job, put her daughter in school because they're you know they're that kind of people, libertarians, I would say. Anyway, <laughs> um, trapping libertarians. This movie sounds more and more fascinating as it goes by. 
But um, so it becomes this thing about him trying to hunt and kill this wolf. But that's not what all it's about, because as he's out there looking for this wolf, he comes across the dumping ground of a serial killer where he finds uh, several different bodies. And that's what really where the movie starts into gear of um, so is this where a period this is going. Piece? Is this like 1880s or is it a, a now? Sort no, of thing? it's like it's I think it's supposed to be 90s. Oh, okay. Um, so they don't have to deal with cell phones and a little bit more modern technology because it's all CB radios and bullshit like that. And there's a there's a Walkman in the film. Okay, so yeah. you the, at first it kind of I thought it was going to be a period piece sort of thing, which I guess I mean making it in the '90s is still interesting. But I have a fascination with doing the exact same bland horror movies that come out now, but do them in the 1880s, and they're suddenly fucking more interesting to me. I don't know what it is about it, but I don't know. I just like. Yeah, I mean hats. that's a, that's not a bad idea. I mean. It, and that involves having some more period costuming and actually like building more sets and stuff. So you, you can't just set up wherever the hell you want to. It's going to cost a little bit more money, but you could have a more interesting concept. I mean, that's what worked with the Revenant, though. Just shoot it in the woods. Then you just got to dress everybody up in fur. And I mean, you had to get a bear, but you have to get the fur. You have to get the the appropriate timely weaponry. You have that's the where the problem lies. You can't just you know throw somebody in their day clothes and have them walk around the city, which is a lot cheaper. Well, you could, but then you have the dead next door, and that's a whole different story for another day. <laughs> but um, I can't get in too in-depth in this because I don't want to be too spoil spoilery on this one because it is so recent. It kind of loses its thread after the first, say, 45 minutes or so, and it becomes kind of something else and it focuses more on the wife character and of course the serial killer when Nick Stahl shows up and this is not a spoiler unless you're fucking stupid because when Nick Stahl finally shows up in the movie it's considering the cast is so small you know this motherfucker's gonna be the serial killer so that's I'm not spoiling anything on that when he shows up things kind of kick a little bit more into gear but with the way it's structured and the fact that when he does show up, you know he's the serial killer. That kind of throws that whole thing out the window of suspense at all because it's like, okay, where's it going from here? And the movie itself is a little ass-draggy through about, I'd say, 50% of it, maybe even 60% of it. It just becomes this whole thing of survival, of looking for food when um, you're kind of basically trapped out in the woods. There's some... hmm. We put it this way, for people who live in the mountains and who are living off the land, they make a lot of really dumb mistakes that you'd think they wouldn't make because, like, you've been out here surviving this long. Why are you making all these, like, weird mistakes? How are you not knowing what the local um, flora and fauna can provide for you as far as food goes? How is it, why, how is it so hard for you to find food because you've lived out here for so long? You should have a lot of these um, these things in place to where it's not like, what do you do like in the winter? What do you do? Like, so they're just like, they make a lot of mistakes that way. But ultimately where this film goes to the ending, the ending itself, the last maybe five minutes can be fairly shocking. I didn't find them particularly shocking at all. The fact there is a child in the film should tell you a lot about why people are so like, Oh my God, it's just so brutal. That's a little spoilery, but I mean, if again, if you have heard the hype, and you know there's a child in the film, you should put two and two together pretty easily that probably that kid is going to have some problems in this film that people are uncomfortable with. I don't know. I mean, even with that as a spoiler, it's we, we did Evil Speak recently, and it's one of those things like, 
you know that dog's gonna die. The second that dog shows up on screen, I don't understand. I mean, I get it. I get how it assaults and shocks people's senses, and I'm not trying to, like, gatekeep or be insensitive in the subject matter. But when you've seen enough movies and you understand the formula and you know this is going to happen, you know, like, not everything's gonna be a Serbian film, but... People just freak the fuck out when kids and dogs die, and, you know, it's like they didn't kill the dog. It's not Cecil B. DeMille, you know, they're not actually killing <laughs> the animal for the movie or drowning people for the big shot. Cause he Unless did. your name is Thomas Edison, and elephants are involved. But anyway, Hunter Hunter does have its problems, very much so. The, the last five minutes, as I said before, are pretty interesting. Um, it's a whole lot of build-up for... Some payoff, but not the ultimate payoff where you're just like, oh my god, yeah, this has finally gotten to the point where I, I, I need it to go. But the payoff is fairly adequate. It's just getting to that payoff takes so long, and the ride getting there isn't as interesting as I think that the uh, director thought it would be. And it needs a little bit more of the, the serial killer aspect thrown in. Because once the serial killer is introduced, say, 25 minutes in, the, the, that aspect of the film... Um, it's almost kind of forgotten about. I mean, it's always looming in the background, but there's not like um, little bits of like you know breadcrumbs to get you through until you introduce the character of Nick Stahl. It's just it becomes more about kind of bland survival in the wilderness, and we've kind of forgotten the serial killer plot for the most part until we reintroduce it. So it does have some structural problems, but overall, I found it pretty entertaining. I would definitely give it a probably a three and a half. Uh, it's not something I would probably watch again, not to say that, but for me, repeat value is a big deal with movies like, you know, rewatch and it just doesn't have that much rewatch value. Once you, uh, you pick up the thread, know where it's going and get to the end. It's like, all right, glad I watched it. I have no interest in watching this again, particularly, but it's not bad at all. Three and a half. Definitely. It kind of reminds me how you've been describing it of that kind of vague uh, sister fucker movie Saulnier did. Something, something, wolves. I don't remember. Guys. Oh, God, I cannot remember the name of that fucking movie at all. I watched it. I don't remember it. I managed to just spoil the entire thing with <laughs> my synopsis. Yeah, hey, yeah, it's fucking his sister. The sister fucker movie. Sorry if you haven't seen that one. Definitely the weakest film uh, with Saulnier, and I think it has the same problems. His aspects of it weren't weak. Um, I think the subject matter, the uh, the original material of that film is what's weak. The book itself is weak. It just didn't really go anywhere for me. Um, I did love the awesome shootout at the end. That was awesome. And always uh, Macon Blair, great seeing him. But this sounds cool. I like Nick Stahl. I'd like to it's see... It's worth a watch. Yeah, I'd like to see Sawa, um, you know, because my biggest, when you say his name to me, I think of SLC Punk. So that's always that performance uh, instantly comes to mind, especially once he's brain damaged from well, all he's that acid. What, what's surprising about it, he's come so far from, since he did disappear for quite a while and he's kind of come back to acting, he's disappeared from that, whoa, kind of character he always played, like an SLC punk where he's just like very animated, very Bill and Ted sort of teen type character. Well, he, you know, he, he grew up. I mean, you can only play the idle hand role so many times, and I, I don't personally know why he left the business, but once you get boxed into a certain role and then you your hair starts thinning and you hit 29, you don't get fucking cast anymore. So what, what do you do? outside of find something else to do until you can redevelop yourself and in his case it looks like he really got buff and you know found i mean that's really all it takes sometimes change your appearance and then go back to the studio and uh you know try out again 
figure it out. Yeah, and I think he does a really good job in this film, and uh, the the transformance of him as an actor, I think, is really interesting. Um, that I hope he actually gets back into making a lot more films and being taken seriously as an actor because he does a really remarkable job in this film. Not that he like he's just, oh my God, he deserves an Academy Award. But no, from going from where he was as an actor in the late 90s to where he is now, it's just like, nice change. You've done a, a really remarkable job of like, growing up, and I can take you seriously as an actor. And, you know, because after Fanatic, a lot of people are just like, I don't know, man, what the fuck is this movie? And this shows that Devin actually, like, no, he can be taken seriously as an actor, and the fanatic is what we all thought it was. It is one giant Twitter shit post. And it sounds like Nick Stahl remains a muttering, greasy-haired weasel man. Pretty much, and he looks no different than he did fucking 20 years ago. He's one of those Keanu Reeves guys. He just hasn't changed. I mean, Keanu looks like 35 or so now, so he's aged like 10 years in the last 30, but Nick Stahl still looks 19, 20 years old. It's it's strange. It's very strange. I guess it's my turn. We'll go with a movie I like. Um, not that I didn't dislike the other one, but I think I feel a bit more strongly for this than I do uh, Sea Fever. 2015 by Marcin Rona, Demon. It is about a wedding that goes horribly awry. A What platform did you catch this on? Uh, I think it's on Tubi, but I found it on a platform called Canopy. Mm. Uh, it's a Polish film. There is some English, Polish horror film. And it is about a, uh, a, a Londoner who falls in love with a woman, and upon preparing to marry her, they're going back to Poland. He receives from her father a plot of land that belonged to his father. It's been in the family for quite some time. Before the wedding, he decides he's going to build a swimming pool, and while excavating, he uncovers a skeleton. Following that, the next day, the wedding happens, and guess what? He slowly becomes possessed, and this movie's pacing it, it's really creepy-crawly at first, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It's sort of muddled, and you've got this... These very long shots with uh, like water phone music playing in the background. It has it has a Cronenberg feel, but not necessarily his early work. Something more like a history of violence. It just kind of creeps along, and everything is very dreary. And then once you uncover the skeleton, it just goes into overdrive. I don't know much about Polish culture, but this movie is completely driven by vodka and the mass, mass consumption of vodka. So the wedding festivities are blowing up. Everyone's absolutely drunk, and this fella, he's possessed. Whatever he's uncovered has something heinous. And that's what you're led to believe at first, that there is something evil afoot. And I'm you know, trying to, like you did with the last movie, trying to remain as spoiler-free as possible. What you end up finding out is this is much more historical and political. Uh, at the very beginning of the movie, when the wedding is kicking off, you've got an older gentleman that has a speech, and everyone's shushing him. It's not a very loving, happy, you know, congratulations, you got married speech. It's about recognizing history, and it's about recognizing some of the ghosts and scars of Poland and how... Uh, you know, people don't remember history, and when you don't do that, it's doomed to continuously happen. And it begins to rain, and he has a very beautiful statement about how this rain shouldn't be taken as something ugly on, on a wedding day. It should be taken as the tears for those that have died in Poland. And that starts to give you a, a, a different approach to this body that was found. Our lead character decides not to tell anyone about it. Because, I mean, the next day is his wedding, and he just found a skeleton 
digging in his backyard. So it's, it is a little understandable as to why you wouldn't want to, to ruin the festivities and spook everybody out. But as things begin really going crazy, you begin seeing the class differences between people, and you also begin seeing the, the true nature inside of people's hearts. The actual Polish family won being very upset with the fact that their daughter is marrying an outsider. And two, you learn out that the previous owners of this land were all Jews. Then, you know, Poland got fucked. I mean, Poland's history is really just getting fucked. They've been invaded over and over and over and over and over again. And during World War II, it was one of the heaviest places of persecution of the Jews. And not everything is the Nazis. You have to actually look at the people. And just like right now in the United States of America, we are seeing, uh, frighteningly so, that a good, I'd say more than half of our population are pretty much, uh, for, for lesser terms, the Nazis. And there were people that would just turn the Jews over. There were people that didn't want them in their area, that they were a different type of, uh, you know, Polish blood, that it's the same thing going on here. It's the same thing. White pride, xenophobia, it exists worldwide. And you start getting this nut cracked, and there's so many different layers as you start to peel away and realizing the differences between the classes of these people. And, you know, this guy is speaking in tongues. He's convulsing. He's seizing. And, you know, they it, he can't take him away on his wedding day. They even call paramedics, and they let him stay because it's his wedding day. Everything's fine. They lock him in the basement so they can continue the party and not ruin it for everyone else. And what you end up finding out is it's nowhere near as horrible and evil as Pazuzu in The Exorcist. What you have is, uh, in, in Jewish folklore, the spirit of the dead that instantly becomes attached. They've been displaced in a very bad manner, so they're, uh, you know, like, lost, I guess what you could call an average ghost. And when they're discovered, they attach themselves to the very first person that finds them. And here's where things get really kind of uh, brackish with this movie, and I don't really understand what happens. Our possessed lead character, we find, is... Oh, shit. I said I wasn't going to do spoilers, but I just pretty much... (laughs) Oh, well. Well, if it goes into explaining what the movie's about, then... Yeah, unfortunately, there's really no other way to do it outside of just saying, well, a guy gets possessed and shenanigans ensue at his wedding. What you have to pay... Which is kind of a bland description when you think about it. You kind of like, why is this interesting? Not that aspect. This is why it's interesting. Yeah, unfortunately, I really have to tell you what happens to, to show why it's interesting. And really what it is is this explanation of Polish history and the fact that you slowly begin to find out that the body wasn't... We don't know what happened. All we know, it was a, a young Jewish girl who disappeared in the 40s. We don't know anything ab- about her outside of that, and her spirit has instantly attached to the bridegroom. Then it gets really murky. It goes into two or three... It's not like it changes direction, but it just seems like it, it ends in a poof, and we don't really know what happens. There is suggestions. There's a lot of different directions as to how, I guess, you could interpret the end of the movie, but I, I thought it was very disappointing and kind of crushed the momentum because up until the end everything was going great and even though it's turned from a a frightening ghost story to more of a sympathetic plea and a reminder of the scars of history and how awful humans can truly be it just stops it just it just stops and we've turned into So this- it's a Kevin Smith film. Uh, it's, it's it, it has more credence to its ending than I think Kevin Smith has ever had to any of his more serious films. You can interpret it different ways. I don't think there's ever really an interpretation to 
you know, whatever, like Tusk or a Red State. It just fucking stopped, and that <laughs> that is a disappointment. This has an ending. I just, I guess what I'm saying is I don't really like it. It didn't really do anything for me, and I don't think it complemented the story. And unfortunately, uh, briefly trying to research and just see if there was something I missed, uh, I went to look up the director. As this movie premiered, he committed suicide and hung himself, so we'll we'll never know at all, I guess. But again, it is open deeply into your own interpretation. I, I think it was... It's kind of Polanski-esque in the way it's shot. I hate fucking terms like that, but it at least gives you a, an image in your mind. They're very long and beautiful shots. Everything is very dreary, and you always have this kind of like looming fear that something bad is going to happen. And as bad things begin unfolding, you're misdirected so much, and you start seeing how awful people really are. And I mean, it's not just like, I mean, for Polish people, I'm sure it might be an astute observation, but as an American and as an outsider watching it, it wasn't like specifically I'm making like segregated groups of these characters, like this guy's a nationalist, this guy's blah, blah, blah. You can just see, you know, the, the family and the brothers are upset with their daughter and their sister for marrying this outsider, and instantly when something bad happens to him, it's like he's defective, he has epilepsy. You picked this idiot for your daughter to marry, and you start seeing how people truly don't care about each other, but will stand and have a drink with you and smile and pretend everything's okay. And then the guy is possessed. You know, it's not like the Black Coat's daughter where there's some, uh, is there a demon? Yeah, no, there definitely was. It was living in the furnace. Totally. I Demon lives in the furnace. No, this is really in your face. He's possessed. Like, as you describe it, it sounds like it is very thoughtful and has a lot of... Um, overtones and undertones to it that are very much steeped in history and history of the country it originated from. And all of this stuff sounds like I am not interested in watching it myself. <laughs> That's what threw me for a loop with it is, you know, when you read the, the little two blip synopsis that you get on streaming apps about what it is, all you really say, I actually have IMDb up right here. Let's read from IMDb. A bridegroom is possessed by a unquiet spirit in the midst of his own wedding celebration in this clever take on the Jewish legend of the, I'm going to say this wrong, Dibuk? Dibuk. Dibuk? There we go. Yeah, Dibuk. So that's the whole thing I was trying to describe. That makes it sound like it's going to be this really insidious, uh, horrifying movie. It's possession. It's going to be like The Exorcist. The poster also is incredibly misleading. It's just the words demon and big white bold text, and then it's the lead character in the middle of the wedding, shirtless, you know, flipping backward like Reagan McNeil on the stairs. So you see this, you're taken into it, and then you uh, you were very apt with the term thoughtful. You end up getting a very thoughtful product that is much more emotional, and for me, I, I guess I was thankful at the end of the movie because it allowed me to to look into things I didn't really know about before that I, I now have a interest in Polish history and Jewish folklore that I didn't know I was going to have. Uh, it it is kind of sorrowful that the it's not kind of sorrowful it's incredibly sorrowful that the director committed suicide because their work is is very very pretty their work is very articulate it was edited well it was shot well i think the movie as a whole was written well but it becomes misguided toward the end of the movie it just seems like they didn't know how to end it or or what to do that maybe a question mark was more 
I don't see. I don't even know what my where my statement's going because I'm just really left. I I'm confused by the ending. I'll just say that <laughs> I just didn't really get it. It didn't click. It didn't register. And once the credits rolled, it was like, all right. I I, I just wasn't happy with how that went down. <laughs> As you describe it again, it just it sounds like it is a very interesting piece. But as you like, as you're going through it, I can tell that I'm probably not going to enjoy myself too much. And it's not because the film is made bad. It's not the, the fact that the story's bad. It's just, it's just not what I'm in the market for particularly at yeah. this point in my life. Maybe some at some other point, but I'm just not the same person I used to be. Say 20 years ago, it's just like I gotta watch everything. And now, having a baby and all this stuff, I have to be very selective with my time and my viewing. Um, of films and this just seems like I am probably going to be distracted and not be able to pay attention to it and not enjoy myself because it's just not hitting any of my sweet spots. And at this point in life, I need sweet spots. That's what I mostly am interested in is just hitting sweet spots because that's all I got the time for. It's also in Polish, which is a very difficult language to sit through if you have no understanding of it. And honestly, the only exploitation that really is heavy in this movie is the exploitation of the Jewish people. And everyone knows that's very, very depressing, especially when the subject matter goes to World War II. And it's it's Poland. That's their history. It's fucking horrible and depressing. It's not horrible. I'm not, I don't mean it in the sense like it's fucking horrible. What has happened to the to the history to the Polish people of that country has just been ravaged forever and ever everybody just and it's just poor placement i mean it's it's right fucking there and for the last you know 100 years you have these massive powers that they invade people that's that's what they do they invade people and poland just and quite literally in this film yeah i mean and that i think is a really neat reversal on the historical aspect of it and it, for lack of better words it's just a sympathetic film to the plight i think specifically of Jewish people in Poland. Well, all right. Yeah, I'm throwing a rating on it. Looks like it's just a night of threes. I'd give it just a solid three out of five. If you want something that, I mean, I would put a trigger warning on it because it does deal with, um, you know, the the idea of genocide and there is a lot of class warfare. Um, but just it's a solid three. It's nothing to write home about. It's all of these movies, solid threes. Well, I'm going to break that solid three and I'm going to take you directly into four territory, which is not a five, but it's higher than a fucking three or three and a half. And I'm going to um, completely throw you off base because I just threw out one of my movies because I don't particularly want to care to talk about the man with one red shoe i have nothing to say about that particular tom hanks film but i did watch it this week um it is not a very good film the man with one red shoe is kind of a, a miss for tom hanks in the 80s so instead of that i'm going to talk about a movie i saw uh, quite a few weeks ago but i just realized i never talked about it on this show so let's talk about it now it is a movie that was so strongly hyped that it ruined the god that's a baby crying. Hold on a second. That's a baby screaming. <laughs> Not a Tom Hanks fan. Not that particular Tom Hanks movie. Death by DVD will return when that baby stops screaming. Until then, this is the perfect time for another riveting round of Keith David. 
or David Gee. In 1992's final analysis, a flick about a psychiatrist who becomes romantically involved with the sister of one of his patients, but the influence of her controlling gangster husband threatens to destroy the both of them. Who plays Detective Higgins? Is it Keith David? Or David Gee? It's Keith David! Thanks for playing another round of David Keith or Keith David. Until next time, goodbye and good luck. And now back to Death by DVD. It's only a podcast. Just keep repeating. It's only a podcast. Just keep repeating. It's only a podcast. <laughs>And it's a movie that the hype kind of killed it for me because sometimes hype can be a bad thing. Everybody was talking about this movie for a while saying it's one of the most bold and brash movies of 2020. And I was excited about it. I saw his first film and I was like, that was interesting, but he hasn't hit his peak yet. Maybe he's finally hit his peak. And it's the film... Possessor by Brandon Cronenberg, David Cronenberg's son. Oh, man. Every movie tonight you've picked, I unfortunately have not seen, but this really is slated on my list, and I'll be honest with you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you, and non-binary folks, if you use Twitter, uh, please, I, Alexander Nash, is the man behind Twitter, and you posted a, a pretty solid, I mean, what, four or five tweet review of this, and I was all excited to sit down and watch this movie, and I, I hate saying it, but your review kind of kicked it down on my must-see list. Of, ah, it actually it. will probably help you because I put it into perspective of, like, you could probably enjoy it more than I did because everybody was just, like, startling visions of the future. And I'm like, it's kind of generic. And that's sadly what the problem with the film is. It's a bit of a generic plot that doesn't go many places. Because the base concept of this is in a, you know, a, a soon-to-be future through some sort of new technology that is not interestingly designed and whatsoever people can possess via technology, um, another human being and basically a company is using it to possess people to use them as assassins and kill people for so profit. This is roughly, uh, the same concept of his, his last film though. I mean, because that was just injecting essences of other people into yourself. I mean, there's much more to that film than, yeah, that was a little said, bit but... more about disease and things and like celebrity culture. And this is more just about like, it feels like a pretty, it feels like a Christopher Nolan film. It's shot like a Christopher Nolan film. And that's also my problem with it is because it just, it doesn't step out of that original concept. What, what really sets it apart from a Christopher Nolan like concept of a film is it's insanely brutal and violent at times, which is, you know, that's interesting. Um, for me particularly, but the plot of it is not really saying anything, nor does it really go anywhere. It kind of meanders around a lot of the time. Uh, the visuals, 
that are in the trailer, like, you know, okay, well that looks interesting. It looks like somebody's like it, it looks like, um, when you originally saw the trailers for something like Mandy of like, this could be incredibly visually interesting. The problem with that is all the visually interesting stuff is in the trailers and the rest of it is kind of a, you know, not terribly shot, but just sort of overcast and blandly shot film that just doesn't seem to go anywhere and gets lost in the concept of the assassin and the fact that if you were to possess someone's body and try to, um, take part in their life and take over their life to fill this kind of secret agent role that eventually it'll start getting to you and you'll start going crazy yourself because you're living like other people's lives simultaneously with your life. And that's kind of just where it goes. And the ending is, I guess you could say trying to be shocking in a lot of ways to me. It just, it's kind of funny. It was kind of like, which people would call me very dark for saying that, but it's just kind of, like, okay, this is where this was going. All right. So she's the main character is kind of ineffectual and has lost her humanity. The end. And that's really like the biggest problem with the film is just for me, the the biggest issues were the hype of it, the fact that people were totally buying into this and just like, oh, this is just this is hitting all the notes that I needed to hit. And to me it was just like like I've seen fucking inception. This is kind of just Inception done in a different way and just kind of visually shot similar to something like Inception or a Christopher Nolan film. And it doesn't take what could be a concept that you could really go somewhere with. It just kind of meanders into that in the idea and just doesn't take it anywhere new and inventive. It's just like, well, here's your premise and we're going to run this premise through and now it's the end. But all the like the acting is all. Oh, well and good. Jennifer Jason Lee is in it. Uh, I cannot remember the lead actress's name, but she plays Mandy in Mandy. It's something like Swedish or something or British. I care. We'll just call her Mandy. Yeah, let's just call her Mandy. She's the, the lead in the film. But as she is possessing other people throughout the film, she's not really the lead either because she just selectively shows up in a lot of scenes. But I mean, I guess you could say that philosophically, if you get into the idea of in like putting yourself in someone else's life, inhabiting their life, um, and philosophically what that would do to you and do to the other person. Because at one point in the film, the uh, the possession, I guess you could call it, kind of goes a little wonky, and then it has two people simultaneously in the same like headspace. They're kind of fighting over supremacy and control of the body. And I guess that goes somewhere kind of weird and interesting, but not really. It's just, it's... The movie itself is just a little bit bland overall, and that's my biggest problem. Because when you think Cronenberg, you think you're gonna, you know, you're going some really wild places, and this just seems a little tepid to me. It kind of sounds like uh, a horror version of being John Malkovich, Andrea Riceborough, by the way. That's Mandy's name, Andrea Riceborough. And just overall, not a terrible film. Again, it's probably in my top five, 2020. Um, I would give it a four out of five. I didn't think it was terrible at all. I thought it, again, shot very well. The acting is all very good. Um, Cronenberg uh, is going to be a very interesting voice in the future. But for the places that I thought this could go and I thought it was going to go, it really let me down in a lot of ways. And that's my biggest flaw with the film. It's just like, ah, you could like, and kind of the same thing with his first film, Antiviral. Really interesting concept. And 
about, I'd say like what, 45 minutes to an hour into that film. I'm just like, wrap this shit up. Where are you even going with this? This has gone like, you're not even like paying attention to your original idea. It's become like a chase film all of a sudden. And that's just not interesting. And it's the same kind of problem with this film is you've got interesting ideas, but I just don't think he knows how to completely, um, I think editing could be a problem. I don't think he knows how to like self edit to like, okay, this could be a little bit um, grandstanding and like, maybe I just need to like shape this up a bit, like tighten up this bit, this bit, this bit, and this bit. Uh, And that goes for the violence as well. Cause when the violence gets insanely brutal, um, I enjoy it because I'm into that sort of thing, but almost all of it is not particularly necessary. It's just kind of there to be like, Hey, look how fucking crazy this is. But again, self-editing can help. So Possessor, watch it. Definitely like check it out if you're interested in it. But take it with a grain of salt. Take all the hype with a grain of salt. Don't go to all those like bloody disgusting reviews of just like a new vision for the future. That's eh. my comment on the matter of this. That I've not seen the film, but I, I, it's not just horror Twitter, but it's horror journalism in film general. Twitter in general. Well, not, not even just that, but I'm going to just say horror journalism in general. Now there are a lot of other sources that don't fit into what I'm going to say here. And I, you know, I'm not going to, a fucking name absolutely everything but for the most part it is just one giant circle jerk you see certain names in every single outlet every single person uh, essentially blows it because it's Cronenberg or because it's somebody that's really celebrated and that's all good and fine and things should be celebrated things should be championed it's nice for people to see things but when you see 500 people saying that this is like the best thing ever this is the greatest, it's awesome, all because the word Cronenberg, the name Cronenberg is involved. You, you are not helping whatsoever. You're not, I mean, be subjective just because it's from something legendary. Like, there's plenty of people that have massive problems. Well, I wouldn't even say massive problems. There are people that will say they, they love David Cronenberg, but will also be like, eh, fuck it, I'm not going to watch Maps to the Stars, M, M Butterfly, fuck that shit. No... Those are Cronenberg pictures, though. They're cr- as Cronenbergian as can be, in fact. M. Butterfly, I think, is a movie that, that actually defines uh, the, the ethos of his work and his career. I think it is a, a, a lifelong message and, and show so adequately and beautifully shown that that movie is, is one of his best, in my opinion. A complete left field uh, synopsis, or a complete left field look at David Cronenberg's work instead of Brandon. But my whole point here with this little rant is, there's there's no there's no subjectivity anymore. That it's great to champion things, and I really understand that. But when it's five hundred people all saying the same thing, you begin to get ostracized if you have a, a varying opinion. That it's like, well, that guy's just being a troll. He's a fucking doomer because he didn't like it, and that's just not how especially uh, journalism, film journalism, and, and reviewing films should be taken. It's film criticism, and I think the problem is film journalism and film criticism have gotten needlessly intertwined no in a bad way. No one wants to be critical. No one wants to say anything no. that could be offensive, and it's not a matter of being offensive. Now, if you go out there and you're being an asshole, and you're, 
this incompetent director, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's it's ways. It's not about that. It's about the problem is you got too many film journalists who are very intertwined with the studios, the uh, films that they cover. They want to continue to get screeners. They want to continue to have a working relationship with the studios that are releasing these films. So I, they like hold back on being critical at all. They won't say there's a problem with this film or this film didn't work for me in this way and this way. They all just say, no, like this is they just all kind of fucking suck a lot of dick. They suck almost every movie's dick and it's hard to get an objective opinion about things. So you're served up so many positive reviews for so many films. It's hard to actually detect what you might or might not be interested in. So you get led down a path of like, okay, I'm going to watch this. And I was going to watch Possessor regardless. Oh, Brandon Cronenberg. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely watching I'm that. going to see it eventually. But a lot of the other films that I've watched recently, I've been pushed to via very positive, not pushed, but, you know, alluded to the fact that by these positive reviews that this is going to be something very interesting to watch. And then I watch it and I'm just like, what movie were you watching? This is just another like Blumhouse film that goes nowhere. What are you talking about? Like a movie that really illustrates my point is the dark and the wicked from last year. Not a terrible film by any stretch of the imagination. It was okay. It's about a three, but the way that film journalists were talking about it, it was a four and a half to five star film. And I watch it. I don't know what movie you're watching, but this is kind of fucking boring. And does not work on a lot of levels. So what are you talking about? And that's really what the problem is. It's just like stop hyping stuff because you know the director or you know the studio and you like you continue wanting to go to festivals. And I get it. But again, film journalism and film criticism don't need to be that intermeshed. Either you're a critic or you're a journalist. Please try like or just at least be an honest critic as well, well if as you're being a critic a you actually need to be critical you you need to have something to say just continuously spouting off the same thing over and over and over again doesn't do anything at all and i think it gets to a point that you almost feel ostracized when you don't like this movie and you go through hundreds and hundreds of reviews of everyone saying this thing is absolutely wonderful and it's like well I can't even share my opinion now because I'm just going to, you don't like it because it's an all-female cast. No, that might not be the case. I have nothing specific. I guess that could be the whole Ghostbusters argument, which, um, I don't know, I didn't see that movie until way after it came out, and then I sat down and I watched it, and I went, oh, well, they remade Ghostbusters, and that was about it. That was that was literally my thought. It, it was all right. There was some puns. There were ghosts, and they busted them. What did you expect? I, I get the hubbub, I get the problems with uh, just genuinely going against the grain, I guess, but it's not for attention. It's literally the the job at hand when we do the show. We're critics, so not everything is great. And, I mean, this is even a, a good segue into the next film because a lot of the things that you just talked about is pretty much what this movie is. It was halfway through, all right, I get it. It's uh, it's a little too hip for me, personally. And then by the time it finished, it was just one of those things of like, eh, here's a product. It's interesting. It's a film called Tragedy Girls from 2017, directed by Tyler McIntyre, who, for the most part, is a pretty skilled editor. Um, I believe this is his first feature-length film. It's written by Chris Lee Hill and Tyler McIntyre. And it's 
The IMDb says a twist on the slasher genre. I don't really see any twist. I don't. Nothing new has been done or serviced here. But you've got two high school age girls, and they run a Twitter and vlog that is called Tragedy Girls with a Z. And uh, they're it's true crime, but they're fucking sociopaths. I guess that's the twist. And right off the bat, you're introduced to the fact they're they're both sociopaths. They're both um like. Macaulay Culkin and the Good Son, like that level of sociopathy. They're they're kind of frightening, and they have been researching what they believe to be a local serial killer. And like the news, the sheriff, no one knows about this, but there have been some murders in town, and they've linked it together. And they have been hunting this serial killer. And this is how our movie begins. You've got Brianna Hildebrand from various X Men films. I don't know which ones. She's on a date, you know, at, like, Anal Point or something like that, making out with her boyfriend. And what you find out is they've lured the serial killer out there who fucking kills her boyfriend. They kidnap the serial killer, played by a guy I really enjoy, Kevin Durand. Hey, he was in a David Cronenberg film. That one about the asymmetrical prostate. What was that? I, I don't remember. What? <laughs> it's got it's got Robert Pattinson in it, and he's got an asymmetrical prostate. I don't remember the name of the movie. Kevin Durand plays his bodyguard. It all takes place inside of Limbo. Yes, yes, by, uh, written by Don DeLillo. That guy's great. He wrote a book called Underworld that I, I highly suggest reading. Really fucking awesome book. Not about vampires. Kevin Durand, he's in it. He plays the serial killer, and this dude's a hulking, like, six-foot-six Canadian. He's got an amazing voice. Usually he plays ridiculous character actors, and he's really similar to his character in Smoking Aces in this movie. He's got that kind of slack-jawed voice. He's playing a very deranged serial killer. So these two fucking psychopath, sociopath girls kidnap this guy, lock him up in their shed, and what they're going to do is sensationalize on their Twitter and their vlog his murders and solve the case so they can become super famous. And what they end up doing is killing multiple students, multiple people around town. But every time they kill someone, it ends up looking like an accident. The sheriff, no one is paying attention to them. So they are like really pushing with their vlog. They've got all this inside information and they end up becoming twice as heinous as Kevin Durant, serial killer in the first place. And of course, you know, there's a whole twist and I won't spoil the entire venture for you, but what you have is billed as a twist on the slasher genre is an incredibly generic throwback to something that's been done thousands of times before in the 1980s and Italian, American, German, every picture under the sun. It's not specifically clever. It's well acted and it's shot in that like super, I don't really know what to call it, like that teeny bop pop. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but it, it's like kind of clueless. Um, not even so much that. It's it's very much how um, like uh, Miley Cyrus isn't teeny like a Noah Cyrus video would look like. It's it's very hyper colored. It's very music video, but very modern music video. And I just don't know like sixteen seven. It's uh, what would have been Justin Bieber ten years ago, but that sort of like very teenage pop style. So you've got almost like a reminiscent Saved by the Bell look. There's a lot of neon, a lot of, um, it's more of a muted neon, though. It's a pastel neon. Very vibrant hues. You know, it's it's very, very pretty, but it just looks like one long music video. It's filled with constant sharp witticism. All the dialogue is as clever as can be, which gets boring. And I, I'm not giving the motherfucker credit, but like Tarantino. If I'm going to listen to somebody babble for 40 minutes, I hope he's writing it because at least the motherfuckers are going to be well put. Unlike uh, 
Rob Zombie, which is just going to be a bunch of shit. Fuck cocksuckers. I'm the devil's son. This isn't as, uh, I guess you could say, foul as Rob Zombie, but it's not believable. Nothing that comes out of any character's mouth is believable until Craig Robinson appears on screen. One of the saving graces of this movie. Craig? I like Craig Robinson. Good old Craig Robinson. He plays a character named Big Al, and really one of the the, the best sequences in the movie is a fight scene involving Big Al uh, beating the shit out of two teenage girls pretty <laughs> it's just it's it's, it's, okay. it's it's craig robinson so you know it's not gonna Abuse be towards women hilarious i already established that they're fucking psychopaths though so they're coming after craig you know i, I don't want to spoil it too much but he is justified in, in beating up these two teenagers it's a ride i don't i, I don't want to give it just my usual coverall review of it was fun it's a fucking three. Every <laughs> every movie I picked is a three. I will appreciate the violence. There was a great, like, solid, practical blood violence. You know, that that was a nice throwback. That's a nice touch. It's always appreciated when somebody actually gets covered in fake blood. When you get to see, um, I, I, and just unholstered 80s-style violence, like hatchets to the head, beheadings you've got a really awesome gym death where somebody gets their head crushed with a barbell just grade a splatter violence that that's kind of what drove it for me is by the end of it when when the credits rolled well cool cool violence i mean and it's not what we rave that we don't like here uh violence for the sake of violence it's got a point not a really strong one i mean <laughs> what I, I attempting not to give a spoiler alert here but you know when you watch all those french movies and french crime movies and all the artsy fartsy ones you go through the whole ride and you're watching like these bank robbers and uh you know especially like a fucking elaine delon movie like a, a melville movie and they all die at the end. They always get shot. And they always get killed at the end. And you've taken this whole ride with them. And even though you know they're bad guys, you've uh, you've grown an affinity for them. You've gotten attached to them. So it's always painful to see them die. Maybe this is the twist in this movie. That uh, as we begin with our psychopaths, we end with our psychopaths. And presumably, out of all the films I think we've discussed, I'd say this has a pretty happy ending. Um, Life goes on. Maybe that's the message of the movie. You can find it streaming. I, I, I do believe it may be on Tubi, but hey, maybe you can pay two ninety nine on Amazon or not. I'm not your boss. Tragedy Girls, it was a solid three. Yeah, like I've never seen Tragedy Girls, but it follows along that strong path of, what was it, Final Girls or Final Girl? I don't know. There's been several movies in the past, I'd say, 10 years that I can't keep separate they're all very tongue-in-cheek kind of homages to slasher films, which I would say probably have a lot to do with Scream uh, coming to the forefront in the the mid '90s, and that and this definitely people. like this has a very Scream vibe. But despite it being like hyper realistic and music video kind of poppy, they are teenagers. At least the actors aren't. 28 Tommy Hilfiger models and I mean Brianna Hildebrand is beautiful Alexandra Shipp who plays uh, Michaela is beautiful every uh, that too is a little bit of a problem absolutely everybody in the movie Craig Robinson included is pretty good looking and like it's a whole town the sheriff is this rustic uh, Sam Elliott looking dude that has this killer deep voice Kevin Durand also a very handsome person all the teachers all the students all the boys everybody is way too fucking pretty. 
I mean, I go out to get cigarettes and I see like 35 ugly people. The world is filled with, I don't mean that in a bad way, but the world is fucking, I'm one of them, filled with horrible, <laughs> ugly people. No, that's kind of what I'm saying. It's just like, I like a lot of these like slasher homages and horror homages that have come out in the last 10 years. They're all very similar. They all have very pretty casts. Um, a kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek sense of humor. Everyone's um, so fucking witty. Yes, it's all very much like... And there's no, like, realism added. It's all, like, a hyper-reality as opposed to um, trying to do something earnest. It's all always, like, kind of making a joke out of everything. And I'm not saying, like, you can't joke about slasher films and all this. It's just, like, the joke has gotten boring to me about joking about slasher films. It's not like Horsehead bookends. The jokes really aren't that funny. Class, today we will learn how to make a Horsehead bookend. Oh, shit. Perhaps man's highest cultural achievement is the Horsehead bookend. With rape and violence rampant in this land. With human flesh cheapened and vulgarized. One of the last bastions of decency is the general satisfaction one gains from making a horsehead bookend. Well, it's just, they're all making the same jokes, and they're all examining the same thing. Like, um, I never actually particularly watched it, so I can't comment on it too much, but how um, American Horror Story did, like a, a, like, a weird homage to 80 slashers a couple, like, a season or two ago. Yeah, I stopped when they were all witches. That was the last one Yeah, I like, I didn't watch it, I, so I don't know specifically what it was about, but every bit of advertising for it and every clip I saw of it just seemed like that's what they were doing again. It's just, like, a hyper homage to that sort of thing, but never understanding what made those things interesting. And it goes to say for something like Friday the 13th, like the remake from Jesus 11 years ago now, 12 years ago. The problem with that movie is it seems like you've never seen a Friday the 13th film. It's like a wash in all these like music video colors and like, hey, let's put some dumb characters in here and da, da, da. like go back to watch your original Friday the 13th movie. The first like five, they are shot like shit. I mean, they're not terribly shot, but they're just like shot like dramas. They're they run don't and gun movies. Like a... they're, I mean, they're, they're shot to be shot. Uh, the remake they're just is shot like to a... be a movie. They're not shot to have like all this style. They don't need style. They just need the story. That's it. <laughs> the remake of Friday the 13th is like a, a Ghana poster for Friday the 13th. You just yes. you remembered something and, and maybe somebody had a hockey mask and a knife at some point. One thing I will give Tragedy Girls, um, that while you were talking, it kind of turned me on to the idea, especially with reality, is our lead characters, played by Alexandra Shipp and Brianna Hildebrand, are on their phones 24-7 because they run a pretty, they're trying to run a successful Twitter, and they're, you know, vlogging or whatever, and when they are, they're interviewed by the police, when they're discussing things with their parents, when they are uh, brought to the principal when they're in class, every waking second is on their phone, and I know right now in, in everyone's reality going out and being out isn't the most advisable thing. But when you have to go out and when you are out, you still can't help but see uh, going into Cronenbergian ideas again. Absolutely everyone is in this, this pseudo-reality of their phones, that everyone either is Instagramming on TikTok or Twitter or, or Facebooking, some form of social media. Tumblr, unfortunately, is dead. But no one actually is in, with their antenna up, this reality. And you've got this kind of duality with this film of what's going on online, their personas, and then the reality of them. And it's kind of a neat juxtaposition because 
everyone has an online persona. Just like Cronenberg said in Videodrome, one day everyone will have a TV name. Everyone has a screen name. Everyone has a handle now. And we build these personas, Like, and this even ties into horror journalism and horror criticism now. People create these brands and these names and these identities that don't specifically stand for anything in particular, but there's a lot of perks that come with them, and it's great, and it's fine, and it's just a TV name. It's an absolute false reality, and in real life, you're standing in line in dirty sweatpants to get a pack of cigarettes at the fucking grocery store next to me. So real life in this pseudo-reality, I think, is shown fairly well with... I don't think it was intentionally clever at this point anymore, but just... This is what our reality is. I don't think this movie's making a statement on it. Nope. To make a movie look real, somebody has to be on their phone the entire fucking time. That's where we are now <laughs> as as a society. Kind of fucking sucks. Well, see, like what I'm referencing is it just it seems like so much media now, not all of it, but a lot of horror media specifically. We're getting out of it, though. It's not completely like that, but a lot through like the 2010s. Everything was so irony poisoned. It was just oh, like everything's a fucking joke. Everybody's it's too Kevin passe Smith to syndrome. talk about it. Everybody like um, when a character dies off, no one is affected by it, and they go, "Oh, drag!" And it all just feels like clueless with like a horror element added to it. And I'm just it, that got so boring to me that I want some earnest like emotion in a horror film. I don't want it to be a wink wink nudge nudge horror film i just want you to make a goddamn horror film and take it fucking serious at this point you know i'll go to bat with tragedy girls that uh by introducing in the first five seconds our lead characters pretty much as the villains but at the same time our our heroes heroines rather uh, who we're gonna take this journey with you have a lot of allowance with just kind of killing people off because we know these two characters do not value anybody else's life. So we're kind of almost like at a carry syndrome sort of thing where these two girls are psychos. They're, they're in the wrong. They're murdering other people and their classmates, but it's through their eyes. So when the classmates do something iffy, which like one chick's the head of the prom committee and uh, the head of the cheer squad, just kind of a bitch, just, just a bitch. That's about it. Um, but you know, she also is a bit of a Laura Palmer, not doing cocaine and working over the border at a whorehouse and fucking their father. But you know, does meals for wheels and and works for charity. Every waking moment is doing something for the future. <laughs> meals for wheels. So you you serve a meal and they give you a car. Gotcha. Meals on wheels. <laughs> meals for wheels. It's something completely different. <laughs> In a universe where the, 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 the movie Cars is real or Maximum Overdrive, I didn't catch it. Oh, fuck. Yeah, um, awful reference, too. She's nothing fucking like Laurel Palmer. But uh, I don't know. This character is just kind of um, a bitch, and they kill her. But we are kind of, we, we have our two leads, so it's kind of, as I said, like Carrie Syndrome that we, uh, we're sympathizing for them killing this person because they were a bitch to them in front of the other people in cheer squad. I don't know. You got to drop down to a very high school level here and kind of have fun, I think, at that point, because it is driven in. It's it's a very petty driven movie. All the motivation of these characters is very shallow and petty, which, again, is a statement on society in general. But you know, aside from that, it, it's inc it's so incredibly generic that. When I watched it, I was, I guess, more kind of, like, bummed than anything else that I got to the end of it. And it's like, well, this is a 2017 movie. And I start going through and reading reviews, and same situation with a lot of the films we've discussed tonight. It's just blown to hell and back. It's just, like, you'll never guess the twist. This is one of the most zany movies you'll ever see. 
I've seen a million movies like this. The only difference is everyone's just really pretty in this one. And Craig Robinson, you know, wasn't in a lot of 80s slashers. Craig Robinson should be digitally inserted to all 80s slashers. I would sit down and watch absolutely everything Star Wars related if you just, like, put him in there somehow. I don't care how. Just chuck him in there. Craig Robinson in Star Wars. Put fucking Bill Burr in goddamn Star Wars, which gives an awful implication that there is some form of space Massachusetts, which just breaks my fucking soul. But Craig Robinson? Come on. Craig Robinson in The Mandalorian the next season. Replace that chick that uh, is a big fucking douchebag with Craig Robinson. No, uh, If people notice, who cares? Do, do that. Gina, big douchebag chick. Gina Carano. Yeah, fuck. She's a turf. She's bad. I don't like that woman. She's kind of an asshole. Let's start it right now. The petition, uh, replace Gina, I already forgot her name, with Craig Carano. Robinson. Yeah, not Gina Gershon because she's pretty cool. All right. On to my last film. Man, I hope it's Showgirls, because I really want to talk about it. <laughs> it's not Showgirls. Oh, son of a it's bitch. It's even before Showgirls, I'm going to talk about an 80s film that I haven't seen in well over 20 years um, that I, I used to watch on HBO all the time, because that's how a lot of people my age grew up, is you if you had HBO, you saw movies fucking sometimes 25, 30 times. They'd play so much during that month that they were on. And then, like, you know, subsequent months after that, like six months later, it'd be back on HBO and you just watch and watch and watch because there's nothing on television because it's just cable TV and HBO. There's a specific year of my life that I call the year of the vagrant because it played on HBO from like midnight to 4 a.m. for maybe six months. And I just I watched the vagrant every single night, which is a pretty good movie. The reason I want to talk about it is I don't think it gets enough credit, and I don't think the director gets enough credit at this point, um, just watching it and reexamining it. And it is a movie directed by Joe Dante. It is a movie called Inner Space, starring Dennis Quaid, Martin Short, and Meg Ryan. Finally, a movie I've fucking seen. There you go. And what is kind of amazing about Inner Space, and if you haven't seen it, I don't know why. It's fucking 30-something years old at this point, but it's basically a updated version of the fantastic voyage in 1980s uh, vernacular. And it's about Dennis Quaid gets into a ship, gets shrunk down to uh, like microscopic size and like shot via syringe into Martin shorts ass. And then it becomes this story about uh, trying to get chips back from a uh, evil uh, businessman uh, played by Kevin McCarthy. Uh, It's got Vernon Wells in it. It's got fucking every person who's ever worked with Joe Dante. It's got Dick Miller. It's got Robert Picardo. It's got all the fucking hits. And what amazed me about watching this film again is, so people talk about the 80s and the Spielbergian style and the thing like, oh, you know, it feels very Spielbergian. It's very Spielbergian. And if you go back and watch a lot of the 1980s Spielberg films, I think they've got the fucking reference wrong because if you really go back and watch this, these things that you call Spielbergian, like um, like Super 8, that J.J. Um, Abrams film from about like 10 years ago or so, it's Spielbergian. Like it's very, and it's like the only thing that really is Spielbergian about like what, what these people were referencing is maybe E.T. and not even that. They're mostly referencing Joe Dante movies. They're referencing The Explorers. They're referencing Inner Space. They're referencing uh, Gremlins. Joe Dante is the person who really personified the 1980s and that style of that, um, like, say, in Gremlins, that very small-town style 
of like the the quaint small town with very interesting characters just in it. Just to interrupt and, you, um, I, I I do have something on that that you know one hundred percent what I think is is the capitalization of Joe Dante's style and Gremlins is is the best reference one hundred percent is Joe Dante managed to encapsulate Frank Capra. I mean, he could make yes. yeah. It's 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 like it's I mean, it's goddamn that there's too many it's I was gonna, it's 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 a wonderful life. That's way too hard. I mean, Capra did It's a Wonderful Life, and when you watch Gremlins, you, you can't help, especially with it being a backlot movie, just feel that immense, almost um, Rockwell-style Americana feeling, and, and everything, even with the howling, Dante managed to, if it was small-town America, It's a forgotten it. past Americana that he did so well, and updating it to the 1980s, but still having that Americana feel from, say, the 1930s, and kind of meshing the two together to make this kind of hyper-reality that he does very well. And, it, like, that doesn't even so much apply to Interspace, because it takes place in 1980s modern Los Angeles, or no, no uh, San Francisco in this, in this case. And it also um, takes place in Martin Short's ass. Yeah, as well as Dennis Quaid's ass. Um, but the story itself is just, it's so incredibly tight and it's so in- incredibly character driven. And there's not a, like a frame of film in that movie that you can cut particularly. Everything that is sh- like that was shot and edited in this film is absolutely important to the story. It either develops character, it develops plot, it develops something. And it's all so very tight. And with a two hour running time, for it to be this tight is kind of fucking amazing that it doesn't have like extra fluff added to it. Every bit of it is important. Don't you feel that that could be said for the for the most part almost all of Joe Dante's films though? I mean just even oh, looking yeah. at like Small Soldiers that's 100% a, a pre not not even preteen. That's a teenage 14 to 15 year old's movie. It's still really good. I mean, we kind of have Don Coscarelli syndrome when it comes to Joe Dante. Has he ever really done something specifically bad? Like, I don't think not that, really. I yeah. mean, he's made some stuff that's not great. I mean, that like Looney Tunes back in action or whatever it was. It's, it's not a terrific film or anything, but it has its merits. Like everything he's done has merit to it. It's never just a complete matter of failure. It always has something in it that you're going to take with you, whether it be a joke, whether it be a reference, whether it be just um, a kind of emotional feeling and i don't mean emotional as in i'm so sad i'm so happy just he has a way of crafting a story and a lot of it has to do with the fact that he was an editor to begin with he edited um film trailers for roger corman uh, that's the to trick get to start that, that's and how that's, you do it and that's really like where his strength lies is a lot of it is editing and being able to encompass this very much from the heart style that makes you feel like you're being transported into a reality that hmm, that you used to live, if that makes sense at all. It's like that's what the world felt like to you at a certain age. Well, not even when so you grow much that, up. but I think sometimes it's just a vague idea of what everyone pictures reality to be. Because uh, everyone has these pictures in their heads of what Christmas is going to be like and big family dinners and making snowmen and wearing a nice sweater and a white picket fence. Everybody has these ideas of what life and reality is, and I think a lot of it isn't necessarily subliminal, but it is something kind of instilled in us from watching television and Hallmark movies and Lifetime movies and just the generic, you know, you're going to graduate high school, go to college, get married, have kids, have a house, white picket fence, have a car, blah, 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 work every day until you die. Holy shit. It might actually be 
um, capitalism and the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people with its boot on the back of your neck. But that's a different rant for a different day. But you have this, like, in, I think a generalization. Most people, especially in the United States, of just this picturesque, perfect idea of things. Bob Clark, he, he kind of had that ability, too, with, like, a Christmas story of just being able to capture... I wouldn't necessarily say perfection, but this idea of uh, familial perfection that everyone kind of craves and yearns and, you know, it might not be perfect. And like you look at uh, like Dick Miller and Gremlins, kind of xenophobic racist neighbor, but but he's adorable as he's a xenophobic racist. He's a harmless old fucking guy. And I mean, there could be a whole rant and raving about white culture and how it's awful to get away with that and have excuses for the character. But they're there for a reason. The father just I'll, I'll use Gremlins right now. Everything he does, I mentioned this when we did the Christmas episode, that it's almost like the idea of um, entropy, that things will go wrong, things will fail and eventually rot and die, you just don't know when they're going to, and everything he does is is kind of fulfilling that idea with all of his inventions and his creations, but he still supports his family and is a loving, wonderful person, and these are just beautiful humanistic traits that are shown in two or three seconds in the movie, but are instilled forever through Dante's style and his maneuverability, I guess you could say, as a director. What he's so good at, and this has, I don't know if it's specifically the scripts he chooses or just there's something magical about Joe Dante's direction that every character is interesting. It's They're all very character-driven pieces, and he hires exactly the right people to play those characters. Like in Inner Space, Rob Ricardo plays the character of the cowboy, a weird fucking... I don't know if he's supposed to be Colombian. I'm not really sure what um, ethnicity he is, but he has an afro and he thinks he's an American cowboy. And no other person could have played that role other than Robert Picardo and made it as fun and interesting as he does. And that's what he really does is he makes like Joe Dante crafts elaborate and interesting characters. Same thing goes for something like the Burbs. Like all the characters in that are interesting characters. There are characters you take with you um, after you're done watching the film. And of all the films we've talked about tonight, None of these things are something I particularly want to watch multiple times. I watch Inner Space after 20 years, and I'm sitting there watching on Jesus Christ, everything about this movie still works. Every aspect of it works. Dennis Quaid, I'm not even the biggest Dennis Quaid fan. His performance really works in the film. Everything in the film is crafted to make you really love everything about what's happening. I just want to step in briefly before we get too far past the point. But you know, you you discussing how when it comes to Joe Dante as a director or Joe Dante films in general, rather, that all of these characters are so intricate. All these characters are so interesting. I really think that is Joe Dante as a director because not everyone is an informative director. Not everyone sits down and tells people what they want. And he, it's not just spending time with with your crew and and learning them. When he creates these characters and and when he's focusing on it, I feel Dante has has rounded things to the point that he sits down and, and the actors act. They learn and they take from him. And, I mean, that's I feel really the, the role of a director is to shape and to make this Play-Doh into, you know, a, a moving, beautiful thing. And that's really his talent. I mean, he's a great editor. He does great shots. But it's not just one or two movies. Everything. I mean, even Looney It's Tunes. a collection of work because... Dog sign, uh, what is it? The sun shines on a dog's ass, whatever the fuck, <laughs> whatever that fucking phrase is. 
once a day. It, you even have to look at things like the Looney Tunes back in action movie and Small Soldiers. It's who he pulls in for his cast, Phil Hartman and uh, Brendan Fraser, two incredible character actors, people that just... When they're in a movie, even if it's something as shitty as that Asian mummy movie where they dig up, I oh got who was it? I don't even remember who they uh, was it. Yeah, it's it's somebody. It's an awful movie, but you can actually get through it because hey, Brendan Fraser's pretty fucking good. But yeah, just overall, I mean, this is less about inner space as much as it is about Joe Dante as a filmmaker and just appreciation of him as a filmmaker because very rarely do you get a filmmaker who can really just nail it almost every time. And he nails it almost every time. And they all feel like they're part of a collection or a body of work. They don't feel entirely separately. They all feel like Joe Dante movies. Like the Burbs and Inner Space are completely different plots, completely like of their own accord and like even different tones. But they all feel like a Joe Dante film. And that's what kind of is amazing about him as a filmmaker is just how the fuck... And that's a thing we're missing right now. Yes, Christopher Nolan feel, films feel the same. Um, I was going to say, so stepping many... back into something like Tragedy Girls, that's one of the problems with the movie is... It's even interchangeable if... with so much shit and yeah. so many other directors and filmmakers. Even if this director was a huge, big name and this wasn't their, their very first film, I would have a hard time being able to tell you who directed this. And, you know, you talked about him at the beginning of the show and I didn't say anything. And I'll just make the audience hate me even more now. I don't really like Christopher Nolan movies. I like that one uh, Tesla movie. That was cool. The one with David Bowie. That was neat. I enjoyed It's not about, I call it a Tesla movie. Like, it's fucking about Nikola Tesla. It's about fucking magicians. Uh, <laughs> I obviously took only one thing when I watched that film. And to me, a big problem is the stark depiction of, of reality, that everything's so real. Everything's just so goddamn real. It's a dream. But it's it's also a really real dream. It's Batman, and it's real. It's a really real bat. I don't give a fuck. Give me like <sighs> Batman Forever. I know it's it's an awful hated movie, but damn, at least it felt like a comic book. And there's I have a long history of disliking comic book films, so I'm obviously not the most uh, appropriate person to be talking about the subject matter. But the style is just completely interchangeable for me. Like the only way I would honestly know it's a Christopher Nolan movie is I would realize, like, how oh, Cillian Murphy's in this, and <laughs> you know, there's the... The plot is incomprehensible at most times. I start re recognizing the same two or three people, and everyone's muttering, and there's kind of this long, winding soundtrack. That's about it, and it's not like it's problematic, but you used to be able to sit down and almost like a brand be able to stylize people. You would know if you were watching a Ramiro film. You would know if you were watching a Joe Dante film. Toby Hooper, that's eh, a hit or miss, but you at least had um, not so much a familiarity, but really, let's just talk about it like it's a fucking beer. You knew your brand. You knew what you could pick up from the store and have a good time with. You know, I'm going to get a six-pack of Coscarelli tonight, and it's going to be awesome, you know, even if it's uh, Beastmaster or the lesser talked about Survival Quest. You're still going to have a pretty good time. Now it's just... Uh, I pointed this out earlier, you read these synopsises and you've got these little blurbs and half the time you can't even read the end of it and see what's going on. You can watch a very vague trailer that's very flashy and artistic and nice colored pastels. It's grunge, it's goth, it's soft goth or whatever the fuck the fashion is right now. And you take absolutely nothing from it and you end up going on a, I guess a journey, but every journey's the exact same. You get to the end of the movie and just using Tragedy Girls as my whipping boy, ah, well, 
Somebody got hit in the face with a knife. That was, I guess, something. And that's it. I take nothing from it. There's no lesson learned. There's no... I don't know. There's no real point to it. You just did a thing, and you can celebrate it, but being able to have the familiarity, being able to have something like, this is a Joe Dante movie, it it was almost like an award. You knew you were going to at least get your fucking $2 worth if you rented this. Well, and it's, he, for the most part, and like living through this period, Joe Dante never really got any credit, like by like mainstream, like publications or anything. Like a new Joe Dante movie came, like is coming out. It's just like, he made movies, and those movies were either a hit or a miss with the with the audiences. But his name was mostly left out of the press for most of it. He might bring up from the director of Gremlins, but it wasn't this bullshit of like from the visionary director of or like how John Carpenter kind of stuck his hat in the ring at the time at the time and called everything John Carpenter's, you know, Christine or whatever the fuck. Like how he'd always have his name above the tiles. Joe Dante was kind of passively in the background just doing amazing work time and time again and just being like solid at what he did and creating this very important body of work that is still like referenced to this day by filmmakers unknowingly and still call it the Spielberg style. It's not a Spielberg style. It's a Joe Dante style that Spielberg kind of co-opted and through his name Steven Spielberg presents over (laughs) I mean, you have that, too, but I think a lot of the situations as Spielberg's name gets brought up, he was just the money. Like, Spielberg had no input on Gremlins. There's parts of the script that are things from his other ideas. You've got the original script, which is incredibly vicious. It was not even really different from what Gremlins turned out to be, but it was a hard R, possibly an X-rated The mother gets decapitated, for fuck's sakes. There's an amazing scene where the Gremlins go into a McDonald's and they eat everybody, but they don't eat the McDonald's. It's very, very graphic, and, you know, other ideas from previous Spielberg projects, like E.T. and Poltergeist, were thrown into the mix with this. But it's fucking Dante that made it work. There's, There's something just... I, this whole thing about like the the, the Rockwell kind of Capra aspect of it, there's something about the Joe Dante that grabs you. And I brought this up with Sea Fever. He makes you feel like you're a part of the environment. You kind of feel like you're a neighbor when you're watching the Burbs, especially like when the trash man scene comes up and you've got, you know, I hate people that live in cul-de-sacs. They're all weirdos. Just, you know Dick Miller. You know him. You've met him in that scene. And it it's a comfortable at home feeling um and and touching upon what you were talking about when it comes down to his name it's weird when you reference things that i guess aren't in the norm like small soldiers like what do you mean he did that it's like uh, bob clark doing baby geniuses and baby geniuses too or george miller super doing, babies yeah super babies george miller doing babe pig in the city i don't re- i can't sit down and watch these th- those films like babe pig in the city and then the Road Warrior, and, and and review them on the same pedestal. Because one was made for an audience I am not a part of at all. I, I cannot relate to a child. I cannot relate to how cute children's movies can be. It's it's not that I don't have that part in me anymore. It's boring. Nothing's happening. And I, nothing's going to happen to the fucking pig. I know the pigs. There's no threat to that pig actually dying. And I guess I need... Somebody to get their head cut. I don't know. This went to a weird place. Um, you went to a really weird place. <laughs> I always do. What you're kind of trying to say is there used to be filmmakers who had bodies of works that were representative of 
who that person was as a filmmaker and what they had a fucking it didn't always have to be like about style. It didn't have to be, it had to be just like how they're able to take an idea and make it their own idea. And that is just not as relevant today as it used to be because most directors are just directors for hire. And like, I mean, look at all the Marvel shit. I know that's a, like a, a completely kind of, not analogous to a lot of things because Marvel itself has created its own style. But when you throw a director into any of those films, it's hard as fuck to get your vision thrown. I think Taika Waititi was able to do that with something like Thor Ragnarok, where it became very much a Taika Waititi film as well as a Marvel film. But like Doctor Strange, Ant-Man, all those movies are all so much on top of each other, could have been made by anyone. I really feel when it comes to Thor Ragnarok, it was the subject matter, and, and being a clever director and being able to pick subject matter that you could appropriate for yourself, and um, this is a weird term, but kind of colonialize it, and like, like you know, invade it and turn it into your own material, and that entire uh, Hulk series with the Thor and going to, you know, the, the planet and all that bullshit, everything that happens in the movie, was really, really rich with a lot of satirical aspects, which uh, I think the vision that Taka Waititi was able to expose and show you in that movie literally was because of the satirical nature of the whole essence of that comic book. But I that's my one of my biggest problems. Like I've never really shined a light on it as to why I don't like comic book movies. And it's not just Marvel. All of them in general. They're very interchangeable. They're all very producty and bland. And it's you have to watch fifteen movies that look exactly the same to understand one end joke reference and then nothing makes sense unless you do that. And I don't know, call me crazy, but I just miss the days when there was a different guy playing Spider-Man every week. That It was a simpler time, and things seemed a little bit better. And I, I can't say that these are bad movies. I just don't invest time in them because I don't feel at the end of the day I'm going to take anything from it outside of, well, that was neat. That was cool. But at the same time, it's kind of like watching Avatar in 2021. It's really fucking lame. It doesn't look cool, and that's a whole other can of worms of like James Cameron and directors that did have a brand, did have a style. And now it's, I'm going to make the same movie 22 times, but every time I do it, I'm just going to fucking invent a new camera. I mean, he's a whole different story, but he does fit into this rant because it's just, I get to use one of my favorite words here introduced to me by the great Jeremy Solnier. It's fucking jejun. It's just jejun. And it's, it's almost product placement. Everything is so poppy and, Years ago, uh, you had David Fincher syndrome where everybody was just doing that super realistic, dark, grainy, nor feeling thing. And it got so burned out that Nine Inch Nails videos don't even fucking look the same now. I mean, <laughs> the new Smashing Pumpkins can't even use their style because everybody fucking ripped it off because Fight Club. And seven. Yeah, and it, it, it just speaks to uh environment we're in now where there's just... There's so much media being produced at this point. It's hard to actually focus. Like Inner Space, the movie we were talking about before we got off on a complete rant, I'm sure probably from start to finish was probably a three to four year project at least. And now we're at like, well, we've got to get this out within the next uh, nine months or we got to get this out in uh, like a year and a half. Something that's supposed to be so intricate and so like well thought out. It's just like we're rushing through all of it, and if we make a mistake, we'll just go back and fix it. We'll we'll throw money at it to fix the mistake, and that's kind of a shame because like someone like Joe Dante sat down and thoughtfully 
created his film that he wanted to put out, spent time doing storyboards, spent time with the special effects people to like really think these things out before like they bothered to shoot film. And now that we've moved to digital and um, CGI for everything, it's just like, fuck it, just shoot as much shit as possible and piece something together. And it's kind of a shame because you don't get this really well thought out product like Joe Dante was capable of making. Well, that's where my reference to Cameron comes forward with things like Avatar and what he's doing with the the rest of the series that it's good and fine. You know, you're spending all your own money and you're making these incredible, brilliant cameras and you're, you're making this incredible, brilliant technology. Then your movie comes out and you're just, what, going to go into the next one to one-up it? It seems like it's just a game, like, for Cameron as an example. He hit a record and now the rest of his career isn't, a philosophy it's i just gotta keep my record i'm just gonna fucking every time i make a movie it's gonna be the biggest thing ever to ever be done because that's who i am that's become i'm blockbuster guy i'm gonna yeah. have a 10 minute chase sequence on a fucking highway with a truck and a helicopter yeah what is that what story does that add to nothing but it's big well it's all just a big rat race now it's all just having a title it's all having you know uh, the little check mark next to your name and being official it, it's being able to god it, it goddamn everything comes back to late stage capitalism it's just whomever <laughs> has the biggest bank so that was three and three we reviewed some films that's the point of the show right we're film critics yeah sometimes sometimes we just air grievances the ashtray is full and the bottle is empty as always we'll be back next week be pleasant just try and be pleasant and have a good day Watch a Joe Dante movie. On the next episode. <laughs> Death by DVD's Valentine's Day Special. February 14th, 2021. We will pump you full of love. <laughs> An all new episode all about Valentine's Day. It'll be a date with death by DVD. I'm Linnea, and I like death by DVD. It's a statement. DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Death by DVD is broadcast from on top of Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain, in Pound, USA, with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.